Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that while heaven and earth may pass away, your word will always remain. We thank you that we can rely on your word and we can depend and trust in your word that this is uh, the very words that come from heaven for us to inform mankind, to, to know something of our Savior, to know something of our Creator. And ask, God, that you'd open up our hearts, our minds, to hear from you this morning. I pray, God, that you would teach us, Spirit of God would illuminate to us what is true. And, God, that you would help us to know how much you love us, how much your mercy is available to us, how much your grace has done great things in our lives. We pray, God, that you would help me to preach the word, help me to be instant in season and out of season, God, that you would hide me behind the cross, that the name of Jesus would be lifted high and draw all men and women to him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So if you've uh, been coming to Cornerstone for some time now, you may have picked up on the fact that our preaching and our practice leans towards a Reformed perspective. Our statement of faith that you may have read from the website specifically out- outlines aspects of God's sovereignty and God's saving work as consistent with a reformed, dare I say, Calvinistic conclusion. While I wouldn't personally assign my identity to a doctrine, nor do I classify myself or name myself a Calvinist, I do believe that we all learn about God in Scripture in light of the doctrines of grace. Now, there's a lot of questions that may arise and spring up as a result of, of clinging to this lens on Scripture and, and ultimately articulating salvation and God's interaction with mankind in this way. One of those questions could be, who does the choosing? And from that question may spring another question, do we choose God or does God choose us? I realize this is a bit of a false dichotomy because the answer is both. The doctrine of election has more to do with initiation. So who initiates the interaction? Paul here makes the statement that he is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. 
What is he saying here? What does that specific statement mean? Last time we were in Titus, we outlined the nature of Paul's servanthood, which was a personal transformation that would ultimately inform his apostleship. He says he is given to serve for the sake of a cause that's not his own. It denotes the very work of God in his life. As an apostle, he has been sent. The word apostle literally means sent one or one sent forth with orders. He has been sent by Jesus himself to accomplish a mission initiated by his master. We should spend some time unpacking this for the sake of the faith of God's elect. If you are a grammar stickler, then you, I'm sure you can forgive the word of God for putting all of these prepositional phrases together in this way, but understand there's something greater being communicated here. Other translations say, for the faith of God's elect or according to the faith of God's elect. And this gives us a sense of how Paul's mission is informed by his theology. So who are the elect? The Greek word for elect is literally picked out, chosen. So Paul is saying he is a servant sent as an apostle for the sake of the faith of the chosen ones. Much of his own writings and others in the New Testament echo this concept of being elect. And what we see consistently when studying election throughout Scripture is that God initiates the choosing. God initiates the saving God initiates the accomplishment of his purposes. It is by his grace that we are granted faith to believe what God has already predetermined. Now, I realize with that statement, I may have just thrown the gauntlet down and entered into a confrontation with some of you. But let me just ask you for grace and that you bear with me just for a few more moments and get some scripture in here to reinforce this point. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to a few different passages of scripture. So we'll we'll be using our Bibles. If you have the Bible app, you probably will have a leg up on everybody turning pages. But let's engage with the Word of God. We'll first start with what many Reformers would call Paul's magnum opus, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, and we'll read through verse 11. Ephesians 3, or excuse me, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 11 read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, 
to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's a comma there, but we will still stop. We can continue on to Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. We sang of this this morning. It reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 1, we can compare with Titus 1, where he indicates before the ages began, giving us a sense of God's predetermined plan And in Ephesians 2, we read these verses about his grace, this not being a work of our own hands, but by God's sovereign saving. Verses previous to that indicate that we were dead and by very nature children of wrath. And as we sang this morning, it's grace alone, grace alone that saves us. I'd like you to turn to another passage of Scripture. We've been in our life groups reading 1 Peter. So if you could turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter for you is what we've been reading in our life groups. And if you have been diligent in proceeding through the study, we've probably come to this point of discussion in our life groups. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 2 is all we'll read. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This idea of the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God and and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ and the sprinkling of His blood chosen to ultimately represent the work God has done, is doing, and will continue to do. A couple more verses. We'll go to 1 John chapter 4. Verses 8 through 10. First John chapter 4, verses 8 through 10 reads, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is loved, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this, we read that God's love is proactive in sending sending the atoning sacrifice for our sin. The initiation of love to God starts with God coming to us. Therefore, we love because he has loved us. And the last reference we will hear is from John, the Gospel of John and Jesus himself speaking. John chapter 15, verse 16. And we'll just read this verse, John 15, 16. This is Jesus speaking, saying, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Here we see Jesus indicating that he chose us in spite of our choices. Along with these New Testament references that we've read, and there could be many more that we could explore, um, we could revisit our time in Genesis. We just spent the better part of this year walking through the story of Joseph and um, ultimately the providential work of God in Joseph and his family's life, his his family's lives. And we understand and we see God interacting with his people in a way that, that brings us to the conclusion that God is choosing people in a way that supplants their own significance. There's nothing inherently special about Abram when God chooses him to be the covenant patriarch of God's promises to Israel. And ultimately, all those who are called to be God's people, there's Nothing in them inherently that is special or, or worth glorification or, or something that ascends beyond a normal level of moral character. There's God initiating the choosing and literally transforming their identity into the people of God. This, in this we see that God's choice was independent. His grace was sovereign His will was truly free, extended to someone or some people not looking for him, nor aware of their need for him. And while throughout church history this view has proved to be a point of of contention, we should all be grateful for election. The point today isn't for me to get us all to agree on the particulars. The point is to explore the text before us in Titus in light of what God is saying to us through Paul. Whether or not we agree on all the particulars, those of us who have come to saving faith should agree that we have done so by placing our faith in Christ. This text 
tells us that Paul is given to serve as an apostle for the sake of the faith of the elect chosen by God. Let's just sum it up this way. You can be saved and not believe in the doctrine of election. But you can't be saved and not be elect. Is that fair? Got some nods. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it'd be very interesting to, to believe the opposite of that because there'd be some serious edits that you'd have to place on Scripture. The elect in the election is used quite frequently. But we all can agree that we've come to saving faith by placing our trust in Christ. Here we see in the book of, of Titus that it's important to note, and something that's very important to note here is that the faith that we possess is in accords with godliness. It's not just a, an arbitrary faith that we say that we believe and we carry through life and we're ready to argue with people because we know how to articulate this well. But the faith that we possess is in accords with godliness. Godliness meaning that we are representing an active participation in this faith that gives an example of what God's work has done in our lives before other people. So it can, be, it can be pretty entertaining to watch James, the brother of Jesus, make many Calvinists squirm with the notion that faith and works are attached at the hip. The idea of the frozen chosen is an uncomfortable joke that characterizes the impotent witness of the gospel. Now, I don't care how pretty your doctrine looks and how brilliant it sounds— Scripture teaches that conviction influences conduct. As Brock pointed out weeks ago when he was preaching, a true Christian can't not be changed. Every person that we visited in Scripture to, to make a quote in Ephesians and in 1 John and Peter and from Christ himself, they make the case that God's sovereign election did not cause them or cause us to remain idle as if it were symptomatic of that type of theology. If we go back and hear from Paul in Ephesians, we see that in verse 2.10 as we read that we were created in Christ for good works, that we should walk in them. It's not just a belief system. There is a walk that's associated with what we believe. If we revisit Peter, Peter immediately points to the elect in a faith that will be tested by fire. We eventually see in, verse, in the first chapter, he doesn't leave the first chapter without exploring what it means to walk in holiness. If we go to, to, back to the epistle that John wrote in 1 John, he doesn't get past the first chapter without telling us that we must Walk in the light, not just have the light. And if we hear from our Lord Jesus Christ in the very same verse where he starts saying, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. He concludes the verse 
saying that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. If you think about Abraham, the course of his entire life back in Genesis was changed by the faith he had in his God. It's true that he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, but his faith changed his actions. He didn't just admit that God was God and nothing changed. His entire life changed and the entire course of history changed because his faith produced an action. So Paul continues here talking to or introducing as an introduction to Titus here establishing that godliness is the gain of the faith of the elect and the knowledge of the truth. And he begins to emphasize the fullness of our hope, giving us a glorious paradigm for the attributes of God. He says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested. That's not the end of the sentence, but let's deal with what, is, what Paul is saying here. He's giving a picture of God's eternality. Promised before the ages began. The hope of eternal life gives us this picture of God who was, is, and is to come. Before the ages began, present currently, who never lies, is speaking to us, proper time manifested, and ultimately this hope of eternal life, which is to come. In that he never lies, he's stating that God is immutable. He does not change. His goodness remains phrase at the proper time gives us a sense of his sovereignty, that he establishes a work for a particular time as standing outside of time but orchestrating all things to his will, that he is omniscient in knowing all things and when things should take place. These are all attributes working together in what Paul is communicating to Titus. So that we see that the faith we have received and live out is laid on the foundation of the true and living God. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. He is all-powerful and glorious. In these first few verses, we have a view of his love and his lordship, his depth and his divinity. Titus should find comfort in these truths And we should too. Continues saying, manifested his word through preaching with which I have been entrusted with the command of God, our Savior. We will see that Paul is calling Titus to both preach and to identify those who would preach and teach. The faith we have received, we receive through the foolishness of preaching. It's amazing to consider how many agree that this faith we possess is by a work of God. A lot of people agree with that, that the faith that we have is a work of God. He has done this in us. 
But at the same time, we struggle with the notion that it bears upon human effort to produce it and to keep it. God produces the faith. A lot of people agree on that. But then there becomes this debate about what does it take to preserve or to produce it or to enlarge it. We'll eventually dive into the term in this chapter that Paul gives us the term regeneration and the miraculous nature of the Spirit's work in the new life of the believer. But many of us place so much confidence in our own works, our own devices of exercising the Christian faith, being the example that others should follow in light of our efforts. We have boundless Christian resources of theological study and vast volumes of scholarly commentary, yet the baseline believer, the baseline faith of a believer in this country is small. Here in America, we have Christian bookstores as a novelty. You can walk into a Barnes & Noble. You can go to Lifeway. You can go to their headquarters. You can go to websites. You can Google Scripture. Yet the baseline faith of an average person in this country is very small. Struggling to believe basic promises that God has given us. Letting our faith be rocked by trivial circumstances. If we were to compare the activity of churches in America with the activity of the church in China, we'd see completely different dynamics. We consider our church history in this mythical sense where we see these heroes of faith exercising a faith that we could never comprehend and accomplishing such great feats for the sake of the gospel. They were so brave and so bold and so powerful. They're these mythical figures that we only look at as mythical because we're the church. Everybody else is looking at us like, who is Peter? Everybody else is looking at us like, who's Isaiah? The reality is, while we look at them as these huge mythical figures that intimidate us in some way, if we're honest, many of these heroes and giants preached a gospel that was often unimpressively worded and largely testimonial. They watched the Spirit accomplish far more than they could. They watched simple obedience turn cities upside down, setting droves of people on fire. Another luxury we have here in the States is sermon podcasts. You can listen to sermon podcasts so much where you hear from experts so many times it makes you feel like you don't even have a gospel to share. Because they do it so much better than you ever think you could do. I've been listening to, uh, I was getting ready to say I've been listening to C.H. Spurgeon, but that'd be kind of scary because (laughs) he's been dead for a little while. (laughs) But I've been listening to a brother preach Spurgeon's messages. It's been an incredible blessing, been so encouraging and 
sharpening and I see why we all admire Spurgeon so much. He was preaching a sermon in particular about um, courage. And he referred to the account in, in Scripture, I believe it's Acts chapter 10, where Peter was preaching to the centurion Cornelius' household. Now, how we place a lot of faith in our, our efforts, our expertise in the way that we share the gospel. And this account of Peter preaching to this centurion in and of itself was like a really, really tense dynamic because you've got here this Christian who's operating with this underground church coming to a centurion who's a soldier in an army that ultimately opposes everything that the Christian faith believed. And he's preaching to his household, not just Cornelius himself, but he's been invited over to preach to his household. And he, in Spurgeon, he, he gives this really interesting detail about that account that I had never thought about before. Peter's preaching or sharing with the household about Christ, sharing the gospel, and in the middle of what he's sharing, the Holy Spirit falls and changes everything. So I don't even know at what point Peter was cut off by God, essentially, he was talking to them about Jesus. He, I don't know if he got to the, the second tenet of the gospel or the, the deep work of the, the atoning sacrifice of Christ. I don't know where he got, but the Holy Spirit came and did the rest of the work. So it didn't bear on Peter's execution. It, it, was, it was more about the fact that Peter was in position to execute what God had called him to do, and the Holy Spirit did the work. See, Peter didn't have commentaries and manuscripts. He just had the Holy Spirit and a burden for souls. Much like all the heroes of the faith that we articulate, all these great stories about, two, I mean, it's right, it's true, it's good what they have done. But this is what they had. They just had belief in the gospel. They had faith to believe that Jesus was Lord and a burden to go out and share it. So here we, we find the cause for visiting the activity of evangelism, visiting the topic of the activity of evangelism in the life of the believer. Sadly, we find more discussion seemingly, I'll say seemingly to try to qualify this, seemingly there's more discussion in the American church about the definition of evangelicalism then we find exhortation towards evangelism. I see Paul here writing to Titus as someone given to the faith of the elect. But Paul, if we, we take a lens on Paul, he didn't have this rosy path to planting churches. He didn't have this rosy path to starting these churches from nothing. reflect back to his ministry to the church in Corinth, where he experienced flagrant opposition in his evangelism, coming to a city for the first time and sharing the gospel in a very difficult scenario. And he struggled with the responses he was getting. In a later time, I invite you to, to read through Acts chapter 18 to see Paul struggling with these adverse responses to his preaching. 
He experiences rejection from the Jews. And God directly addresses Paul in a place of likely discouragement. And what he tells Paul is that he has many in this city who are his people. Paul's preaching and experience frustrating results, and God himself says, keep preaching, keep enduring. I have many people in this city. Tim Chester's Titus for You book has encouraged me in my study of Titus and offers some helpful considerations of evangelism, even from a reform perspective. He says this, I have come to realize that the main thing that stops me from witnessing about Christ is the feeling that it will be a waste of time. If I invite my neighbor to an evangelistic event, they will almost certainly say no. If I share the gospel with someone at a party, then they will probably edge away from me. And so I do not bother. But this is not how Paul saw his life. His life was lived for the faith of God's elect. God has done the choosing, so God will do the persuading. All Paul had to do was find the elect, and he did that by preaching the gospel to everyone without discrimination. Many of us may remember Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower. And the seed is going out with no discrimination. And the fruit that is born is not the work of the sower. He sows the seed, goes into his home, goes to sleep, and wakes up to see the results. Our life groups did a study in the book Parables where John MacArthur helps us see that the seed is the word. There's no alteration or additional seasoning needed, just willing vessels to go spread it. Charles Spurgeon says this, I would sooner bring one sinner to Jesus Christ than unravel all the mysteries of the divine word. For salvation is the one thing we are to live for. A lot of times it becomes a discouraging thought to think about how often have I shared the gospel throughout my life as a Christian. But what we see here is an encouragement to know that if God has done the work, then we just have to spread the seed. We just have to be in place to share the good news. The response will be God's doing. The inactivity that we often see in churches and the discouragement because we're not often seeing new life spring up in hearts who are far from God. It's a a work of Satan to deceive us to saying that there's nothing we can do. That our words are not good enough. That our testimonies aren't impressive enough. But in the activity itself, we'll begin to see God do marvelous things. And even though we're not 
coming in hindsight and reading epistles and, and recollection stories that have been canonized and ultimately revered for history and time to look back on and say, wow, look at these great heroes of the faith. We're a part of that story. We're a part of those who are sharing the faith and suffering for the sake of the gospel. We're a part of those who have been faithful to the word of God entrusted to us and ultimately sharing to the world around us. I want to encourage us to be active in evangelism as we enter into a time of communion and we remember what Christ has done for us, just thinking of people who do not know Jesus, taking that bread and cup with us, knowing they once were lost and now they've been found. This is Paul's introduction to Titus, his true child in common faith. May we also cherish these words. May we also look to these as if God himself is speaking to us, reminding us of his faithfulness, reminding us of his saving work, and ultimately reminding us of our servant mission to the rest of this world. May God have grace on us and empower us to accomplish all things to his glory. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. Your mercy endures forever. Your truth endures throughout all generations. I pray, God, that you would continue to work in us, God. That you would enlarge our faith, God. That you would give us greater glimpses of your glory. That our responses to go out and to represent you to be witnesses of Christ, bear weight on what you have already done. Not on our efforts, not in our confidence in our own abilities, but knowing that you are so powerful, so gracious, so loving as to send your son for us. To give us this mission, not for us to think that we have any significance or special treatment on this earth, God, but to know that we are recipients of a grace we don't deserve. And as we express thankfulness and gratitude and joy in that, God, I pray that we seek to share that with others who don't know you. I pray, God, that we embrace this truth in a way that literally causes us to be racked with discomfort if we don't share it with somebody else. Give us boldness, God. Give us courage, God. And help us to come back together, not looking for some validation in all of the efforts that we've put forth, God, but just in true and sincere joy that we have the precious privilege to worship the true and living God who has done marvelous things in our lives. Help us to remember your word and to continue to lean on it and its truth. Holy Spirit, use what was preached today in ways that I articulated well and ways that I did not articulate well. We trust you with the work, God, knowing that you are faithful. In Christ's name, amen.